I like that last song. That was good. <laughs> All right, my name is Dave, and if you're new at the church, welcome. I would love to meet you. If we haven't gotten to meet yet, I'm uh, one of the pastors here at the church, and something we like to do every week is open up the Bible and study it together because we believe that the Bible speaks to us with the relevance, the authority, um, the present need of Jesus speaking to us himself. And so we're going to open it up and listen to what Jesus has to say. We're going to be in Titus for the new year. Our new series is called Church is Not What You Think. Church is Not What You Think. We planted a church last year, and so part of the impetus for wanting to study this book of the Bible is to just rethink who are we as a church, kind of renew our identity, replant, so to speak, what Grace Bible Church is, and we want to do that from the Scriptures. And so Titus is a book that says this is how church is to be organized. There are three letters in the New Testament called the Pastoral Epistles. It's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And all three of those, the word pastoral epistle basically means shepherding letter. They're letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to say, this is how you should shepherd a church. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the black Bibles you'll see under the chairs, and you can open up that black Bible to page 999. It should be somewhat easy to remember. It's a real short book. We'll be in it for about seven or eight weeks studying what church is really to be. Uh, I want to start off with an image, a a picture, if you will, from a story. Um, How many of you have played hide-and-seek before? Any of you played hide-and-seek or or maybe still play hide-and-seek or maybe in a local city hide-and-seek league or something? Um, There's a story about a little girl that was playing hide-and-seek with her brothers and sisters, and she's wandering around a real big house. She was at her uncle's house, wandering around this big house, and she found a big open room. She ran in there and she was running out of time, there was really nowhere to hide in this room except for one big wardrobe in the back of the room. So she heads to this wardrobe. A wardrobe is like a big cabinet you put clothes in, for those of you that maybe don't have a wardrobe, right? Like modern houses have closets now instead of wardrobes. So anyway, it's like a freestanding closet. She opens the door of the wardrobe, and she goes inside, and she's like, well, I don't want them to just open the door and find me. I'm going to push behind the coats and hide behind the coats. So she pushes behind some coats in this wardrobe, And she keeps pushing, and she's kind of thinking to herself, wow, this wardrobe is much bigger than it appeared on the outside. And as she pushes and pushes and keeps going deeper and deeper, eventually she starts feeling branches. And she's pushing away branches with snow on them, and then she finds herself in a snowy forest. And of course, she's completely amazed. She's like, how in the world did I get here? It turns out that the wardrobe is like a magical portal to another land. And this concept, this image of something being more than it appears on the outside, it's found in a lot of different stories, right? You've got like Hermione's purse, you know, you've got um, the wardrobe here. You've got all these, like there's this book we read called The Hundred Cupboards where there were secret cupboards to it, you know, that uh, had windows to another land. This concept is in all kinds of stories, but what I want to make the case for is that this is what the church should be the church should actually be more than people think it is. It should be a gateway to this fantastical whole other world we would call the spiritual life, knowing Jesus, walking with him, reconciliation with God. And so as we read the book of Titus over the next seven or eight weeks, I want us to be thinking about what do people think the church is? And then what does God call the church to be? And our job as God's people, as the church, is to be more than what people expected. But we can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We can only do that if God is actually present with us. 
So let me read the beginning of Titus, just the introduction. We're going to get some introductory themes to what God is calling us to in the book of Titus, the letter of Titus. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. So this is a letter from Paul. That's where it starts to Titus. Titus is his protege, someone he's trained to shepherd and pastor other people. He's writing this letter and he's going to give him instructions on on how to do that, how to organize God's people, what God's people should be. And I want to start from the beginning saying we picked this art uh, on purpose of a building so that we could say church is not a building, right? What is church? Church is God's people. And in our culture, we commonly use the word church to stand for the building, right? And it's not like it's evil to do that, right? You're going to church, you're going to the gathering. Well, it's not really the building. It's the gathering of God's people together. It's the people that God has called out to walk with him and to know him. So we want to continually be thinking, what are my preconceived notions of what church is? And then what does God actually say church is? And what does God say church should be? And again, we need God's supernatural help to overcome those cultural notions, those ideas that we already had. So I'm going to pray that his spirit would meet us this morning and help us to hear from him in his word. God, we pray that you would teach us from your word. We thank you and we receive it with grace. We thank you for this gift and we pray that your spirit would help us to hear from you. God, I pray for us that are committed to you, that you would continue to shape us according to your word. And God, I pray for those with questions that you would Give an open mind and a listening ear. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So church is not what you think. And I think in these beginning, uh, opening kind of introductory lines that Paul gives us here in this letter, he's gonna touch on some major themes. Some of these major themes you're gonna find in every letter of the New Testament. So if you've read much of the New Testament, you know there's kind of a basic format where Paul opens a letter and he says, this letter is from Paul. This is who I am. And I'm writing for this reason. And I'm writing to give you this grace. And this is the hope we have in Jesus. And so there's some kind of common things he says a lot, but then there are also unique things that he says that are a foreshadowing, kind of a like telegraphing of this is where we're going with this book. So what we'll look at this morning is we'll look at some common themes that we see in every letter of the New Testament, but also some peculiar kind of particular things that he's setting up for us as we study Titus for the next few weeks. So the first thing that we're going to see as we think about what church really is, is that church is servants on mission, right? It's people, not a building. We might think church is a building, but Paul says, no, it's, it's servants on mission, on a mission from God. And then the second thing we see is that church is God's ancient plan. We might think that church is traditions of men or church is a human conspiracy. And frankly, there's been some of that that's come in and kind of messed up what church is. But Paul is saying here, no, church was God's idea. It's God's initiative. It's God's ancient plan. And then the third thing we're going to see is that church is grace being proclaimed. I think one of the greatest misunderstandings of church 
is that church is the good people trying to isolate themselves from the bad people, when really what church is, is it's the people that actually realize they're bad and they need God's grace, right? So church is a place where God's grace is being proclaimed. So first thing we want to look at, first theme is churches, servants on mission. It's servants on mission. And what we're going to see is we're going to see Paul introducing himself this way. And so what I want to set up for you is throughout the New Testament, it's clear that apostles had a special role. Um, So there's this language that the church and the faith that we have is built on the kind of foundation of the prophets and apostles, right? And so we would say prophet, Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles are the ones that wrote the Bible. And so that's different, right? You don't get to write the Bible. I don't get to write the Bible. They, They have a different job there, right? But pretty much everything else beyond that, the other ways that they conceive of themselves, we should imitate, right? So we basically want to imitate the Apostle Paul. We want to see ourselves the way Paul sees himself and imitate who he is and what he does, right? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So we want to follow his self-conception. And he starts off in verse 1 saying, Paul, a servant of God. And we want to see ourselves that way as well. And this is repeated so many times in the New Testament that I'm not going to give you any cross-references for it, okay? If you don't believe me, just go read your New Testament. But we are called to be servants. We are called to be servants. Just like Paul is saying, I'm a servant of God. Now he says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that's that kind of official role he's sent out. But again, even the church is sent out. The word apostle literally means sent out. A modern language translation for that would be missionary. So, right? so there's a sense in which you may not be an official missionary that's been sent to another country, but all Christians are sent, right? This is made really clear in Acts chapter 17, where Paul actually says all people are sent in the sense that God has put you where he's put you on purpose for his purposes, right? He has this plan for you and he's put you in the place and the time. He says this in Acts chapter 17, he's determined that. And so Paul's saying he's an apostle. He's a sent out one for Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, this is a major theme that we're going to see again and again in the rest of Titus. So I'll speak about it for just a minute. And that is that knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Do you see that? See how those two things go together? One of the biggest problems that churches have and any religious institution for that matter is saying you can know God without changing. But the gospel says that knowing God messes with you, right? Like once you know God, he will not leave you alone. He's gonna change you and he's gonna conform you to the image of Christ. And so one of the greatest false teachings that churches teach today is just pray the prayer, just make mental assent, just say the magic words, and then you're a Christian. When the New Testament says Christians are those who have been supernaturally changed, not perfect, but supernaturally changed by God, who know the truth, and that truth is messing with us. It's beginning to shape us according to godliness. And so that's what Paul's going to teach more and more throughout the letter of Titus, that it is all about God's grace. It is all about something that he has gifted to us. It's not something we do on our own, but that grace, that knowledge of the gospel, that knowledge of truth that he's talking about here accords with godliness. It's going to begin to change you. And so a question to ask yourself in 2020 is, am I changing? Have I changed at all? If I know Jesus, it's got to look like something. Again, it doesn't make you perfect, but it begins to reshape your heart and your desires so that you begin walking in a new direction. 
you begin following Jesus. You stumble, you fall, he forgives you, he picks you back up, and you keep going. And you're changing over time. We call this sanctification. Um, It's the process of being made more and more like Jesus, being made holy. And it's long, and it's bumpy, and it's difficult, and it's painful. And again, it's not like you snap your fingers and you're instantly perfect just like Jesus, but you're following him. So the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. And again, my big idea in this is that we would actually be changed so that we would start having this new self-conception like Paul did, that we are also servants on mission. So do you see yourself in that specific way as a servant on mission? Does God have work for you to do? Or do you see church as just a building you come to or a club you hang out at or something where your consumer needs can be met, right? That's often how churches are built. They're built on, hey, let's make people happy. Let's get a big crowd together. We'll get more and more people happy. And then we can kind of snowball this thing somewhere. We have to say, no, church is ultimately servants serving together. Now, I need to clarify this one word, servant. Uh, the Greek word doulos can sometimes be translated as slave. Any of you have slave in your translation or bondservant? Some of you do. Um, and so that's a fair translation. A lot of modern translations are getting away from slave. Why? Because in America specifically, we have this messed up history with slavery, right? And so what, what I want to say is, I don't think the Bible defends slavery, especially not the way we practiced it in America, right? Because that was race-based slavery. That was kind of a dehumanizing kind of slavery. So I want to be careful here. I'm not making the argument for slavery is good, but whenever we hear the Bible talk about slavery or being a servant in neutral ways, that doesn't mean it thinks slavery is great, but it's not affirming the race-based dehumanizing slavery we practice in America. Does that make sense? Like that's a completely different category. And I believe biblical principles condemn that. And we're glad that we stopped that in our history. We're sad that it went on as long as it did, right? So here, that's why a lot of modern translators say, okay, let's not use slave because it's going to conjure up all these weird images in people's heads. Let's use the word servant. And the main idea of it, the core is that, that you're following your master, right? So you can relate to that in the sense of you may not call yourself a servant, but you maybe have a job. You maybe have a boss, right? Raise your hand if you have a boss, right? Okay. Some of you, and then like half of you are unemployed. That's sad. (laughs) So the half of you that have work anyway, you know what it's like, right? To serve someone, to serve a boss, a master. So I grabbed a picture here of a to-do list. Um, You make a to-do list, right? Sometimes you decide what goes on your to-do list. Sometimes somebody else decides what goes on your to-do list, right? So what Paul is saying here is, is being a servant of Jesus and the whole church should see ourselves as being servants of Jesus. That means we get our to-do list from Jesus. We serve him. He is our master. So that's what we mean when we say servants on mission. The church is God's people who recognize, I need God's grace to save me. And now he's given me a job to do. He saved me brought me into the family, and now I'm a part of the family business, which is loving and serving others, being a servant on mission. So now I want us to look at this other little word here, back up a little bit into the the middle of verse one. He says, he's a servant for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of a truth, which accords with godliness, right? So for the faith of the elect, what does that word mean? Elect, election. Um, Literally, it means the chosen ones, right? And we can get into a lot of difficulty with the doctrine, what's sometimes called predestination. So two New Testament words are 
predestined, right? God looks ahead in the future, who he's going to save. And this word election, he chooses some people. And what I want to do is kind of focus your hearts on a good self-identity for 2020 of what he's saying here. What he's saying is, we'll use myself, is not you should see yourself as chosen or I should see myself as chosen in a prideful way, but I should say I was a street rat living in a slum, but God in his love chose me and picked me up and cleaned me off and brought me into his family, and now I work for him. That's really how we should conceive of this being chosen by God. One of the big New Testament words for it is adoption. It means spiritually speaking. You might have had biological parents, but spiritually speaking, we had all run away and we didn't have a family. We were like spiritually on our own, just trying to survive. And that's what got us into a lot of trouble, right? We were fighting and scrapping and poking and stealing, doing whatever whatever we needed to do, shoving people out of the way just to get by as spiritual orphans. But God adopted us in his love. That's what the New Testament says again and again. And so when you see yourself as adopted by God's love, as brought into his family business, then you'll be able to function as a servant on mission. Then you'll be able to say, I've I've got a job to do. Like my, my job is not to just get as rich as possible and buy the biggest house I can buy. My job is to serve Jesus, whatever Jesus has for me. And he might call me to this city or to that city. He might call me to this work or to that work. But whatever he does, wherever he sends me, I'm going to obey him. I'm going to follow him. Do you have that self-conception? The church is supposed to be an organization of people that see themselves as Jesus's people. We're his servants on mission, doing his job, fulfilling his to-do list. So again, Acts 17 says, man, he's He's put you in the job you have. And I know that might make you sad because you might be thinking, I I hate my job, right? So I don't want to think that God put me there. But maybe in 2020, you should say, Jesus, what do you want me to do with this job? How can I represent you well? And this is not a job I want. And Jesus, as soon as you can move me out of this job, I would really like that. That would be awesome. It's okay to pray that. But also pray your will be done in this job. Jesus, how can I serve you on mission in this job? In your neighborhood, Jesus, how can I represent you in my neighborhood? Another thing moving forward in 2020 is not just thinking about where Jesus placed you, job and neighborhood, but this congregation, right? Like if Jesus has called you to partner with us in this local church, how can you serve with us in our corporate teamwork, right? Uh, One of the three introductory ways we would say serving on a team, real great places to start are serving in the nursery, or serving on our welcome team, or serving with our elementary children's ministry. Those are great places to start if you haven't kind of found a way to serve corporately with us. I'd encourage you to jump in to one of those ministries in 2020. So be thinking, Jesus, how can I serve you on mission in my job and in my neighborhood? How can I serve you in the local church? And then be praying long-term, Jesus, how do you want to form and shape even my vocation and my future plans? how I begin building and setting up my life, my family, so that it serves you as best as possible. How I can take the the talents and gifts you've given me and I can offer them up for your glory. Pray that in 2020. Jesus, show me how I can serve you with what I've been given. We all have these unique gifts. We all have these unique talents that he's given us and we can use them to honor Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9 is a great cross-reference to to show how we are his servants on mission. First Peter 2.9 says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, uh, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's a great summary of a lot of the same themes we just saw. You, you were without a people. Now you got a people. You got a tribe. You belong to Jesus now. Once you had needed mercy, now you have mercy because you now have heard the message and believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's ultimately what crosses you over. It's not just showing up at a church, but it's personal faith in Jesus loving you, grabbing hold of you, taking your sins upon himself and giving you his resurrection life. That's what actually transfers your uh, familial line, right? So that you're no longer a spiritual orphan and now you're in his family is your personal faith in Jesus. Have you crossed that line? Because it will make no sense to see yourself as a servant on mission if you don't already understand that he's adopted you and made you his own. So do you have personal faith in what Jesus has done for you, his death and his resurrection? If so, then in 2020, you should see yourself as a servant on mission. All right, next thing that he tells us about the church is that it's not just some human conspiracy, right? And this is where we have to be kind of subtle, kind of nuanced here, because churches, by and large, over the last 2,000 years, have fallen prey to human conspiracies, right? Like when people gripe about church and how bad it is, you kind of have to start off and say, well, yeah, you're right. It, it has been bad in a lot of ways. Lots of bad churches out there. Lots of corruption. One of the things that surprised me over the years as a pastor is how many people come to church nervous because they've been hurt so much in churches. And man, I'm sorry. Like there's just a lot of bad stuff out there. And I know we've made mistakes and hurt people here as well. And so we've got to always be clarifying in our mind, it's not a human conspiracy. It's not a human tradition. This was God's plan. And so we're, we're constantly reforming. There's this uh, kind of motto of the Reformation, semper reformanda, which is Latin for always reforming, right? And so the opposite of that, in a sense, is that the church is always being corrupted, right? <laughs> and so we just have to recognize because there are human beings involved, because we're sinful, there's always this drift towards sin and breaking down and decay, right? Uh, is that the second law of thermodynamics, right? This entropy, this, it's like it's always falling apart. So we always have to be reclaiming it and pulling ourselves as a community back to God's ancient plan, saying this was God's idea. It's not my idea, it's God's idea. This is not my community, it's, it's God's community. And so as a people, we need to be calling each other to that. So he gets on this theme in verse two. He says in verse two, all of this that he's been sent out to share is in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. It's about as far back as you can go, right? It's like, have you ever uh, seen something like something in a movie and you're like, oh, they stole that from that other movie, right? In the creative world, a lot of things are borrowed. Like you'll hear a sound in a song. You're like, that kind of sounds like a sound in another song. And you know, everything to some degree with human beings, we're always kind of borrowing and stealing from somebody else. But with this, with the idea of God's people and God saving us and renewing the world, it started with God. It was his idea, his promise from ages past. And here's another place where he introduces a theme that he's going to hit on more in the book of Titus, and that is God who never lies. And what is that contrasted with? Well, that's contrasted with human beings like us who, who often lie. And particularly Crete, it was a big problem. 
And so we want to be careful. Uh, we don't want to be, we, we want to be careful not to say that like a particular race always has this certain problem, but we can say certain cities, cultures, and families might have certain kind of family problems, right? The way I've looked at this is over time, when you look at different cultures across the world, we all believe in at least like four or five of the Ten Commandments. And then there are three or four we just throw out and say, we don't care about those, right? Like in our culture, one of the problems our culture has is is glorifying sexual immorality and saying it's no big deal, it's fine, we don't care what God says about that. But like honesty is pretty important in our culture. Doesn't mean we never lie. I mean, people still lie in our culture, but it's pretty important. But a lot of you I know who've traveled a lot, you've shared with me how, man, in other cultures... Lying is no big deal, and they lie all the time, and they're proud of it, right? Have you all ever seen that in other cultures? Well, in Crete, this was particularly a problem. It's going to come up later in the book, and we'll work through, again, some of the culturally different, you know, it's not politically correct in some ways to say what Paul says, and so we'll work at that when we get to it. But he's saying, you're in a place where a lot of people lie. And we need to remember, God always tells the truth. God always tells the truth, and this plan comes from God. So in a world of competing voices and people screaming at each other and saying, you should believe this and you should believe that, we need to keep reforming ourselves, keep calling ourselves back to God's ancient plan. And that's why we teach out of the scriptures. We would say, man, if if we just taught whatever theme I wanted to teach, we'd be in big trouble, right? If we just hung out on my soapboxes all the time, our church would always kind of be going off track. And so when I teach or when other people teach at our church, they teach from the Bible, right? Uh, One of the ways we do this is a thing called expository preaching. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Expository preaching means what we do is we primarily just preach through books of the Bible, where we say, we're just going to study Titus for a while. Last year, we're just going to study the book of John for a while, right? We're just going to kind of move through, and it's going to bring us across some chapters and some verses that we wouldn't maybe ordinarily preach, but it's going to kind of force us to be Bible-centered and be centered around God's plan instead of being centered around our plan doesn't mean it's wrong to teach topically, because even when we teach topically, we're going to teach the topics from the Bible, right? Uh, so we're going to be calling ourselves as a church corporately to God's ancient plan by teaching the scriptures. My question for you is, how are, how are you going to be doing that in 2020? How do you keep calling yourself back to a confidence in God's truthfulness? How do you keep reassuring yourself, I can trust God, I can believe him, his plan is secure, he is right. He is holy. How can you do that in 2020? I, I would encourage more time in the scriptures, rethinking how, how do I hear from God? How do I listen to his word? There's a lot of different ways to do that. And we can recognize that's in contrast to, man, all the other voices out there, right? We live in an information age with computers and TV and music. And we all, you know, we carry around basically like a television set in our pockets now with smartphones, right? Like, how are you going to control that thing? How are you going to leash that thing that you carry around in your pocket that's always sending messages to you? A meme that's been going around a lot is the screaming lady and the cat. Have y'all seen that one? Screaming lady and the cat. And it kind of represents, um, you know, one voice versus another voice. That's, that's kind of the idea, right? Because this is, there's been like tons of captions. Whatever caption you want, you can stick with it, right? But generally it's this person says this, screaming their head off, and this other person, happens to be a cat, calmly disagrees. And, and I don't really like it that much because I'm not a cat person, right? And the cat kind of represents the voice of sanity, I think, in most of the memes. Um, 
So be thinking about that, right? Like what's the screaming voice that's out of control that you're hearing, maybe from your phone, maybe on social media, maybe just your own painful past screaming at you? And then how can you answer that with the calming voice of the word of God? Again, that's where the, this breaks down because a cat should not represent the word of God. So sorry. <laughs> but how can you answer the voice of insanity that are just always floating around with the voice of sanity from God's word. How are you going to do that? What's your battle plan? Do you have a plan to do that? Are you going to memorize scripture in 2020? That's a, that's a great way to move forward. So I'm going to memorize a chapter of the Bible. My wife was just memorizing Romans chapter eight, and it was fun to be like talking it through as she was memorizing it. And one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, that'd be a great one to memorize. If you're just going to memorize a whole chapter, memorize Romans eight or maybe memorizing specific verses. There's a ministry called The Navigators, and they have this thing called the Topical Memory System, and it'll have kind of topics, kind of uh, general ideas of truth of God's Word and different topics. You can memorize a verse for each topic. That's a great system. You can download an app. I think it's just a few bucks, so that instead of always looking at Facebook on your phone, right, or watching TV or Netflix on your phone, you can, you can work on some Bible memory in the new year. If you want to start reading your Bible, get a Bible reading plan. We have uh, Bible reading plans here at the church. It's a somewhat chronological reading plan we've put together. It's a good place to start. If you've never done a Bible reading plan before, I would recommend this one because we came up with it. But there are a ton of them on the, the version Bible app. Have y'all seen that? Anybody seen the version Bible? You can listen to it. You can choose a different Bible version, right? Like we study the Bible here in the ESV. Maybe you could start listening to a different Bible version to kind of get you thinking about it in a different way. Um, I really recommend listening, especially if you have trouble reading. I have no problem reading, but I feel like I learn better when I listen, right? Like I just feel like I absorb it better. So I listen to the Bible a lot, but encourage you to come up with a Bible reading plan, an attack plan to center yourself on God's ancient plan. Say, I need to, I need to answer the crazy voices in my head with the voice of God, with the sanity of who God is. And here's kind of, just to give you an example, here's two of the crazy voices you might be hearing. One crazy voice might be, you're worthless and you're a nobody. And the way you can answer that with the gospel, of course, growing in your knowledge of the scripture, you can answer without the gospel and say, God loved me so much, Jesus died for me. He adopted me, he saved me. And you can answer that voice of worthlessness with the great value that God has placed on you by sending his only son for you. There's this other crazy voice you have sometimes, and that is, I've got everything right. And if other people would just get their stuff together, this world would be a better place, right? That's the voice of pride. And so that's for you. You need to be reading the scripture and be recognizing the perfect, holy otherness of God, the God who never lies, the God who is always right and say, that's really the standard I need to measure myself up to. And so when I measure myself up to that standard, I recognize I'm not as perfect as I thought. And again, I need the gospel. I need a God who loves me despite my failures. So learn to answer those crazy voices with the voice of God's ancient plan and find a way to get more in the scripture in 2020. Okay, the last point we wanna look at is God's grace being proclaimed in his church. Church is often uh, built like a business, it's very dangerous. We need to build our church based on prayer and the proclamation of grace, right? That's not to say we don't need to be organized. I've learned a lot of things from business books and the way organizations are run, right? Like it's good to be organized. It's good to be orderly and do things with excellence. But the essential root 
of what makes God's church the church is the message of God's grace. And that's why we're always going to be proclaiming that message. We're always going to be drawing ourselves back to who is God and how has he revealed himself by his grace in Jesus. So let's look at verse three and four. And we'll finish up with this last point. It says in verse three, at the proper time, this whole thing has been manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. So Paul says, how is it seen manifested is like displayed, shown, right? Like, so how's all this stuff that Paul's been talking about? How's it going to be seen? Through the proclamation of God's word, the preaching with which he's been entrusted. Uh, the word preach, uh, caruso, it's like this uh, idea of a herald. So in the old days, they didn't have TV news. They didn't have newspapers. So the way they'd get news from town to town is they'd send someone to announce it, right? And so again, there's a sense in which there are official proclaimers, right? Like I'm the, uh, one of the official proclaimers at our church. You might call me a preacher, right? So I have an official role as a proclaimer. But all of God's people should be those who testify to God's grace. We should be those who herald the good news, So even that word, uh, gospel, it's literally good news, is the idea of a proclaimer saying, hey, I got good news. You you think the world is going to hell in a handbasket? Well, in a way it is, right? But good news, God is intervening. God is saving people from hell. God is saving people in Christ. So I've got good news to share with you. So I get to do that officially as our pastor here at the church, but you get to do that as well. You get to testify in your everyday life to who God is and the grace that he's shown you in Jesus. I love the story we saw back in the gospel of John of the blind man who got his sight restored and they were like grilling him and grilling him, you know, asking him all these questions because they didn't like Jesus. And he's like, man, I don't know, but I was blind and now I can see, right? <laughs> like, I don't have a theology degree. I can't really explain a lot about Jesus, but I've been shown grace. So we all have this basic ability to, to function in that way and proclaim this grace. And he says in verse four, this letter is to Titus, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. And so this letter is being addressed to Titus. It starts with Paul, the letters from Paul. And then now in verse four, he's saying, this is to Titus, this is who the letter's written to. Just for New Testament background, again, I said there are three letters in the New Testament that are called pastoral epistles or like shepherding letters in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And we see as we read the whole New Testament that Timothy and Titus were two very close, dear friends and coworkers of Paul. And he calls both of them like his sons in the faith. So he has this this kind of closeness to them. But this also reminds us of, again, a bigger New Testament theme that by God's grace, we're made family right? And so again, the church is not people that belong to God because we're better than the bad people out there. We're people that belong to God because of his grace. He's made us family, right? So as I look out over all these faces, we all have different racial backgrounds. We all come from different neighborhoods. We all have different levels of education. We all have different jobs. And those jobs and those families and those cities we come from and those backgrounds that we have, that's not what puts us in a right relationship with God. We are all united here this morning to the degree that we are desperately dependent on the grace of God. That's what makes us family. That's what brings us together. That grace is what unites us. 
And again, what we see is practically in a church, a church that highlights grace is able to be more forgiving and more overlooking over secondary issues, right? The more we lift up grace, the more we can kind of overlook when we have different preferences and different backgrounds and different traditions from each other. We can come together and say, yeah, these secondary things are secondary things because God's awesome standards of holiness and his incredible grace shown to me in Christ, that's what's primary. And so we can move in the same direction because we're united by that grace. Think of it kind of backwards engineer this when we don't proclaim grace, but we proclaim my preferences or your preferences, then we're kind of isolating ourselves. We're saying we're going to We're going to build a community based on preferences, based on traditions, maybe based on the color of our skin, or maybe based on our education, or maybe based on our favorite authors, right? So my question for you moving forward in 2020 is, what are those things that I I tend to make primary that really are secondary? Are there things like that in my life? And I grabbed a, a sign here, it says authentic. Do you have something in your mind that's like a flag, a sign, a symbol of authenticity? Someone's really a holy Christian if they listen to my favorite author or my favorite pastor, right? And there is a kinship there, right? Like if you meet someone that loves your favorite book or loves your favorite sports team, there's, there's a connection. But the danger is when we make that the marker of authenticity, right? Timothy and Titus are a great case study of this because Paul had Timothy circumcised. I won't go into the details of that, but it's a painful surgical procedure, that marks authenticity for Jews. And so Paul said, Timothy, because you've got a Jewish background, we're going to give you that Jewish marker of authenticity so that doors will be opened so you can proclaim the grace of God. But Titus, he wouldn't do it. Galatians 2 talks about this. I'm going to summarize it for you. But if you want to look later at Galatians chapter 2, it, it talks about this. Paul says when people demanded that Titus be circumcised, when they said Titus doesn't have the mark of authenticity and you must give it to him, Paul, or he cannot be accepted by us or loved by God, Paul said, absolutely not. Why did Paul say yes with Timothy and say no with Titus? The difference is is when he says you have to, right? When people say you have to do this for God to love you, that's when you should fight. That's when you should say no. And if you've known me for very long, uh, people notice this. I'm, I'm pretty agreeable, but when people are like, oh, you've got to do it this way, that's when I'm like, Rrr, right? Like, I'm, that's when I'm like, no, I'm, we're going to fight over that. If you're saying I have to do this for God to love me, in, unless it's the gospel, then, then we're going to have a disagreement. So there are essentials, right? I think the best way to think about it is God's law as expressed in the Ten Commandments We can't fulfill that perfectly. We go in that direction, but the gospel is the only thing that really fulfills that for us. Jesus is perfect, right? So we've got these essentials of God's law and God's gospel being the fulfillment of that. But kind of everything else is secondary. And we need to be careful not to make our mode of dress or our favorite kind of music or our favorite style or our favorite author a marker of authenticity. Be thinking about going forward in 2020, what am I going to, what am I going to fight over? What am I going to make most important? And Jesus should be our bottom line. And again, that, that's what actually brings us together. So for Timothy, Paul said, yeah, we'll circumcise him. It'll open up new doors. It'll get him into new places. He'll be able to connect with people. You know, it'll be less of a distraction. He'll get to tell more people about the grace of Christ. 
But with Titus, they said, he's got to be circumcised or he's not accepted by God. And Paul's like, nope, we're not doing it. We are not doing it. We're going to dig in and say no. So again, it's a great case study of how sometimes Christians will follow preferences because it's no big deal. But other times when a preference is elevated to a you must do it to be accepted by God, that becomes a false gospel. It becomes a substitute for the cross of Christ. So moving forward in 2020, how are we going to proclaim God's grace? Um, I think at the simplest level, it's just know it better, right? Like there are great summaries of the gospel you can learn yourself. Sometimes we talk about the Roman road, which is a collection of four verses from Romans, which is Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, and Romans 10.9. I'll say it again in case you want to write it down. It's Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, and Romans 10.9. And those are just four verses that kind of summarize the basics of the gospel. We've fallen short of his glory, but he's given us grace in Christ. We need to trust in him. So it's really helpful to learn that, right? Moving forward, learning the scripture in the new year. There's also this great app called the the Life on Mission app. And it's a little app that helps you to explain the gospel with a a method called the three circles. Talks about the kind of the three worlds of the way God created the world, good, and then it's fallen into brokenness. And then Jesus is saving the world through his death and resurrection. Um, So the Life on Mission app is helpful. The the four verses of the Roman road is helpful. Um, But also praying that God would show you what competes for priority in your own heart. Say, God, what what are the things that I'm tempted to put up there on the same level with Jesus, right? A lot of New Testament letters talk about this. We can never make the gospel Jesus plus something else. The gospel is just Jesus, God's grace is Jesus is my only hope of being adopted and accepted with the Father. So we'll wrap up here. As we think about what church is and what it's not in the new year and what God calls us to be, I want to go back to the story that I shared at the beginning, the hide-and-seek story. Um, It comes from a book by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't know if y'all have heard of that book, but a great little children's story that has a lot of cool Christian themes in it. And so she goes into the wardrobe and then she finds this you know, place of wonder and discovery, this great new world, right? And so I want to stretch the analogy a little farther because C.S. Lewis, who is a linguist, named the owner of the house Professor Kirk. Why is that significant? Well, Kirk is the word for church, right? Scottish word, Norse word for church. And so C.S. Lewis on purpose is saying the children are playing in this house, which is the house of the Kirk. It's the, the Kirk house, Right? And just the distinguishing thing I want to show you is that it wasn't the whole house that was a portal to a magical world of wonder. It was the wardrobe inside the house. I know I I might be losing. If you're not into fantasy literature, I might have lost you. So we'll just say this in a new way. The church's self is not the doorway to a world of wonder and forgiveness, but the church better be the place where people find the doorway. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The church is not the way, the truth, and the life, but the church better be the place where people find that way. It better be the place where where people find Jesus. That's what we're called to. Let me pray. God, thank you that you fill us with your spirit and you are the one that's building this church. And God, we pray desperately in 2020 that you would remake us 
more and more in the image of your son, Jesus. We pray that you would conform us to be more like him. And God, we don't want to suffer, but we know often that suffering is the means by which you do this. We pray that you would make us good listeners to your word. You would make us those who obey you. Most of all, Lord, make us those who delight in you, who celebrate your goodness and your grace. Help us to be a place that surprises people. Help us to be a place that's, that's not what people expected because we're a place where people find Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.